Tonight, we are concluding a short little two-part series that Mr. Michael Sandoval, uh, one of my favorite people on the planet, kicked off last week. And Ryan and I were out of town last weekend, but I got to watch the Vimeo, uh, the, the uh, podcast video of, of his message. And uh, he kicked off beautifully with um, this idea of Jesus as king. And tonight, as we conclude this series, King and Kingdom, we, we want to explore uh, a second additional question Uh, Multiple questions, really, but one big question. Um, If Jesus is king, if he wasn't just king back then, if he's not simply going to be king someday, but if Jesus is king here and now today, if Jesus is king, then what is his kingdom all about? Right? Because essentially, there is no king without a kingdom. Kings, kings rule and reign over kingdoms. And so tonight, we want to examine and explore the idea of God's kingdom. Uh, I've shared this with some of you before, um, but I used to, when I was a kid, I was madly in love with uh, these books. Um, has anybody ever seen those Choose Your Own Adventure books? You guys remember those? Those were killer, right? They were so awesome. So I would read those like nonstop. Go to the library, elementary school, middle school, nonstop choose your own adventure books, right? Space Caveman 2000. And then you're like, you're a space caveman roaming the planet Mars, right? And then like the story goes and three pages into it, the, the book tells you you're standing and you see two caves. One cave to the left with a shining light out of it and one cave to the right with water flowing out, right? And which cave? Do you want to choose to go into cave to the left? Go to page 46. To go into the cave to the right, go to page 72, right? It would tell you that. And then you flip to the page, and then it tells you, so page, flip to page 46. I want to go into the cave with the light. It's like you walked into the cave with the light, and there is a space dragon that incinerates you with his fire, right? You're dead. Book over. Done, right? Story ends. And then, so what do you do? What, what does any kid do? Like, no, that's not me. And you flip back, and you go, What's, what was the other page? Oh, you go to page 72. It's like you chose the cave to the right with the water flowing out, and it's a paradise, and they make you the king. You win, right? It's like amazing, yeah. Right? And the beauty of these books, Choose Your Own Adventures, was that everything in the beginning and the middle bits, all of it, was just a setup to the end. Right? That's all you wanted. That's all I wanted. I just wanted to know that at the end of the story, I win. I don't care that much about the beginning. I don't care that much about the middle. I just want to make the right choices, go to the right page, so that at the very end, I get what I want. And we, I would argue emphatically in the church for the last couple of hundred years, but even longer than that, we have missed the mark in our dialogue about the kingdom of God because we have made the kingdom of God an end. It is some destination, far off, future place that we get to. We have made the kingdom of God the chocolate factory, and all we care about is the golden ticket so that we don't burn in hell forever and we get to enjoy heaven, eternity, right? Clouds and marshmallows and Chris Tomlin endlessly. (laughs) If that is heaven, I don't think I want to go, but right? That's what we want. That we just want to get there. We have made the kingdom of God about getting there. But what if, 
What if the kingdom that Jesus came to the earth to offer us offers us so much more? What if it's not just a future reality? What if what God has for us is more than a future destination far off in the distant universe? What if the kingdom of God is a present reality? What if what Jesus came to live, die, and resurrect back into is not, was not designed to offer us a ticket to a future destination post-mortem, but rather to offer us eternity here and now? What if what God offers us is fullness of life now in the present What if the life that you and I are living is not meant to be sitting idly, boringly at a bus stop waiting for the the great chariot to take us home, but rather a dynamic life full of meaning and purpose because the kingdom of God is a present reality and we're invited to take part. What if that's the truth? It changes things. And so we want to ask three key questions tonight. First, what did Jesus actually say about the kingdom of God? Why did he say what he said about the kingdom of God? And what does it mean for us today? And so first, tonight, uh, we're going to trek through, I'm going I'm to kind of seep you into the gospel of Mark, or I'm sorry, gospel of Matthew. Now, there are other Gospels, right? Mark, Luke, and John. And in all of the Gospels, all four of them, actually, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm not, we're not going to dive into Matthew simply because it's the only book where he talks about the kingdom. He talks about it everywhere. But we're going to dive into Matthew, one, for the sake of time, and two, because there's a lot in Matthew. And so here's how we're going to begin. First and foremost, this is in your notes. It's, the most, it's really the, the starting point question for us. What did Jesus actually say about the kingdom? Not all of our presuppositions, not all, all, all of our assumptions, not all the cultural ideas we have about the kingdom, but what did Jesus himself actually say? And you'll see in your notes, I've listed there for you a bunch of different things that Jesus says. And, and I would encourage you, I would challenge you, go home and look into these passages for yourself. That's why I listed them for you. Fact check me. In fact, after the first service, somebody, uh, Dave Larson came up to me. He's like, hey, thou, uh, you know that you quoted, you misquoted a verse. I totally did, right? I listed something as Matthew 5.33. It's not 5.33. It's 6.33, right? So dig into this stuff yourself because I'm dumb and I can, uh, some, I have typos, right? I'm not a good typer. I have fat fingers. I don't. I don't have fat fingers. I don't know why I make typos. Um, Here we go. This is what Jesus says about the kingdom. He says stuff like this. He says that the kingdom has come near, so repent. (laughs) Jesus proclaims the kingdom as he goes about healing and teaching. He says that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit and the righteous who are persecuted. Jesus teaches that the kingdom is to be sought first and foremost. He says that the kingdom has come upon us. He says that the kingdom uh, welcomes the worst of society. Specifically, he actually says that the kingdom uh, welcomes tax collectors, which are the scum of the earth in first century Palestine, in the Jewish world, and prostitutes. Those are Jesus' words, right? Essentially, in our translation, Jesus says, yeah, you know, the kingdom of God, it welcomes 
it welcomes cheaters and hookers. Right? That's what he says. That he uses a bunch of metaphors, word pictures to describe what the kingdom of God is like, and you'll see them listed there. He talks about the kingdom of God being like a man who sowed good seed, or like a mustard seed, or yeast in flour, or treasure hidden in a field. He talks about the kingdom being like a net full of fish. He says that it's reserved for the humble and the least of these. He describes the kingdom of God like a king settling accounts with his servants, or like a camel through the eye of a needle, or like a king inviting people to a wedding banquet. He says that the kingdom of God is like virgins waiting for their groom. Now, the reason I ripped through all of this stuff is twofold. One, I would love for you to dig into this stuff yourself. But two, here's, the, here's where we want to start. Jesus says a lot about the kingdom. And it is not simple, and it is not easy, and it is not designed to be boxed in to a singular, small theology. Jesus says a lot of stuff about the kingdom of God. But here is what is true throughout, what ebbs and flows, what intertwines itself. Here is a theme that intertwines itself in almost everything Jesus says about the kingdom. Jesus talks about the kingdom of God as a present reality. A present reality. He tells people that it's near, that it's here, that it's arrived. He proclaims it as he physically interacts with people, healing people of their present sicknesses and conditions and pains and hurts. He offers it to the worst of society in his day and in his time. He does not offer it to them as they hope to be some distant day in the future. Jesus offers the present kingdom to the worst of society as they are. He uses metaphors, earthy, tactile, physical, intangible metaphors like digging and fishing, like partying at a wedding, like baking. Jesus uses language that reminds us of things that we know that we can feel, that we can sense in our body, in our bones, because it's so real to us. Yeah, fishing, you know what fishing is like, right? To his disciples, sometimes you throw out a net when you were a fisherman and you drag it up and it was empty and you had that empty feeling, right? You know what the kingdom of God is like? It's like throwing that net over, over the side of your boat and you pull it up and it's so full of fish, your net rips. Yeah, I get that. That's awesome. You know what the kingdom of God is like? It's like going to the wedding of your best friend and there is food and drink and singing and dancing and partying the night away. Yes, I get that. These, this is the language Jesus uses to describe the kingdom. Rarely does he talk about the kingdom of God as some distant, departed place that you will go. Never does Jesus say the kingdom of God is a cloudy place with flowers and harps. 
Not once does Jesus say, you cannot experience in any way the kingdom now. You have to die, physically die, to get there because it's some far off, distant place. Jesus speaks and teaches about the kingdom as a present reality. Now he does point us to the future reality of the kingdom. The day when it will be fulfilled, the day when the kingdom will culminate in its fullness. But he does not say that that's all there is. In Jesus' teachings, and this is in your notes, the kingdom of God does not offer rescue from the world. It offers rescue for the world. The kingdom of God is not a distant place where you can run to for fear of burning in hell. The kingdom of God is a glorious reality that you and I can live into today, here and now. And that's the life Jesus offers in John 10, life to the full. What would it look like for us, for you and me, if we began to live into this reality that the kingdom of God is not rescue for me from this place, but that it is rescue for this place. How would that change the way you approach your work environment? That that is not a place that God will someday rescue you from, but that your workplace is actually a place God's kingdom longs to rescue. What about your, what about your classroom setting at school? What about amongst your family What about your friends who are totally disconnected and jaded with religion and Christianity and all that comes with it culturally? What if you began to look at them not with a separatist mindset that someday God will separate you and take you far away, but that God's kingdom longs to rescue them, to rescue that place, to rescue your classroom, to rescue and redeem your workplace, to rescue and redeem your family and your friends and the gym that you go to and the Starbucks where you study? What if you begin to see your world not as a place to leave someday, but as a place that God longs to rescue? How would that change your approach, the way you engage people, the conversations that you have? How would that change the sort of resolve with which you choose to love and to pursue relationships? How would that change the way in which you boldly and with courage, with bravery in your heart, share the gospel, which is not some weird evangelical word. It just is good news. Jesus talks about God's kingdom more often than not using wedding language. And you've been to beautiful weddings, right? It's not about the systems of how the wedding went off. It's not about how long or short the message was. It's not about if the groom had a certain tie. It's not even necessarily about how great or not so great the bride looked. It's not about any of that stuff. It is simply about surrounding people you love, watching this union of two become one. And you say, that's good. That's so good. 
If you believe that this place, this planet, your world, the places, your spheres of influence, where you live and breathe, those are places not to be rescued from, but places where God's kingdom wants to penetrate and invade and rescue, how would that change how you share the gospel? Good news. We read Matthew 4.17. I told you that early up, early on that Jesus says the kingdom has come near, so repent. Kingdom has come near, so repent. You guys have heard this before, but the phrase repent means simply to turn. But the phrase in that sentence, to come near, actually in the original language means to join together. Jesus actually says in Matthew 14, 4.17 that the kingdom of God has been joined with you. It is here. It has arrived. And all you need do is turn and see it. The kingdom comes close. It comes near. It joins with this place. God's reality with our reality. So the next question is, why did Jesus say what he said about the kingdom? Now, we're going we're gonna to trek through the Bible like almost in its entirety, so just hang with me. Don't get stuck on the details. In Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we find the story of creation. God, a loving God, creates the, the earth, created order, and the culmination of his created order is humanity, Adam and Eve, man and woman. And he creates man and woman for relationship, to love them and to have them love him back. God creates out of love because he wants to be with Adam and Eve. He wants relationship. And you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve, they rebel, they sin. They do what God instructed them clearly not to do. And this rebellion causes separation from God and from mankind, from humanity. And from that point on, Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the millennia to this moment in this cafeteria at Del Mar, God has been pursuing us. God pursues humanity. There's this beautiful uh, verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. It says, this is after Adam and Eve have sinned and rebelled against God. It tells us, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. As God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. God is with man and woman at this point in the story. The writer of Genesis is clear to let us know that God is not just with them in a figurative way. He is literally with them. He is in the garden. He is so present, he feels the temperature of the garden. Right? God is so close. He is so with humanity that he walks in the garden in the cool of the day. He feels the 65 degrees. This is the beginning of the story. That God is so with us. And yet our sin, humanity's rebellion, separates God from us. The story of the Bible continues in Exodus. What we find is that God has chosen a people for himself, the nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel throughout their history, they ebb and flow in and out of slavery. They ebb and flow between slavery and freedom, slavery and freedom. 
And the first time that they feel the brunt, the weight of slavery and oppression is in a land called Egypt. And God finally hears their cries and he rescues them out of Egypt and he sends them in the desert on this journey to a land that he has promised them. And here is what happens on that journey. Exodus 25 verse 8 God says, then have them, his people, make a sanctuary for me, and here's the key, and I will dwell among them. This is the beginning of the temple. Some of you know what that is, right? In Jewish tradition, there is the temple, which is the place of worship. It is this ornate, beautiful, and and crucially important in the story of Israel. It is where God's presence resides for his people. It is where they go to meet with God. And this, 25.8 in Exodus, is the beginning of that temple. Make a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. God desires, even as his people journey through the desert, to be with them. Chapter 33, verse 11, this is what happens in that first version of the temple. As Moses went into the tent, pillar of cloud would come and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And here's the key. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. As one speaks to a friend, in fifth grade at Country Lane Elementary School, the most popular kid at school was a kid named Jim Roberry. And I so badly wanted to be Jim's friend. So he would play tetherball at lunch, so I would play tetherball, but he was good and I sucked. He played kickball, so I tried playing kickball, he was awesome, I sucked. And finally, he started playing basketball, and that was the one sport that I was decent at. Now, I suck at it now, but it's because in fifth grade, I had the same level of skill in basketball as I do now as a 33-year-old. So if I now went out to the basketball courts at elementary school and played with some fifth graders, they'd be like, oh yeah, he's not bad, he's like not the best, but he's okay, right? So I like, it's okay, so that, that was me in fifth grade. And I remember the day we were standing out at lunch, right? And everybody's lined up and it's Jim and some other kid and we're picking teams to play five on five. And he's got the first pick and he looks at me right in the eye and he points at me and he says, I pick. And at this moment, my heart is like about to rip out of my chest. I'm so nervous. And I'm not even nervous about being the first pick. I'm nervous like, does he know my name? Is he going to say like, I pick the Asian kid? the weird kid. I mean, there are so many options here of how he can refer to me. And he says, Jim Roberry says, I pick Jay. And I like just about lost my freaking mind, right? I was like, (laughs) Jim Roberry knows my name, right? So in my heart, I'm like, yes, that's my name. Don't ever forget it. Let's be best friends. Where do you live? I want to sleep over, right? It was just like, I'm losing my mind. I have like all these images in my head of like, man, we're going to be each other's best man. And, you know, it was like this amazing thing. I was like, this is so good. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Jim Roberry knew my name. And the social gap in fifth grade between Jim and myself was minor compared to the massive, unbridgeable, unfathomable gap between a holy God and an imperfect, flawed, sinful, broken people like you and me and like Moses. 
And yet, Exodus tells us that God so longs for relationship with us that he meets with Moses and he talks to him face to face like a friend. He knows his name and he knows yours and mine. The scriptures tell us that he knows how many hairs are on our head. That is insane for most of us. For some of you, it's like three, right? <laughs> I mean, God so longs to be with us. He would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. And so this temple, this meeting place where God, out of his desire to meet with his people, it grows and eventually it becomes an actual temple. This is sometimes called the temple period in the history of Israel. Solomon, the king, David's son, a hundred centuries later, he builds a temple, this big, grandiose, ornate temple. And this is what happens when Solomon builds the temple. Second Chronicles chapter 5, 13 to 14 says, Then the temple of the Lord, after they built it at their celebration, was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. They build the temple, and God so longs to be with his people that he fills the temple with his presence. And it's not this like ethereal, ambiguous, spiritual filling. Like, like some of us, right, who are a little bit more Pentecostal, we're like, I just feel the heaviness of the spirit. But the rest of us are like, I don't know, that might be like the burrito you ate. I, this room just feels the same to me. And I'm not saying that that's wrong. That's true. I felt that too. But this is not that kind of feeling. This is Physically, God's presence fills the temple in such density and weight and physicality that the priests can't physically go inside to do their duties. This is how God shows up in the story of Israel. He so longs to be with them that when they build the temple for him, he's like, I'm so here, present with you. It's not an idea. It's not some ethereal concept. I am physically present with you. This is a beautiful picture of God's presence with his people. And then the people of Israel, they, um, they go through all of these seasons in, the, in their story. Succeeding generations either corrupt the temple or they try to restore and reform it. But ultimately, because of such human rebellion, God leaves. God leaves. And there is this period of silence. It's actually called the second temple period. And it's characterized by what, what scholars call the divine silence. That God no longer shows up in the quiet, in the stillness. In the absence of God, we find the prophets. And the prophets whisper in the darkness. And they whisper things like this, Malachi 3, 1 and 2. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. See, the story of the Bible is the story of God with us, sin causing separation, in God's pursuit in order to reunite us with him forever. Can you just write that in your notes? This is the story of the Bible. Just grab your pen. I know it's dark, but just try to jot this down. 
Story of the Bible. Three things. God with us. Sin separates. God pursues us. It's really simple, so profound, and utterly beautiful. God is with us. Sin separates us. And God pursues us. So this is why Jesus said what he said. And for some of you, this reality is hitting you in the face or maybe in your heart for the very first time. And in your personal story, there may be a moment, whether it's tonight or in the coming weeks, where you need to make a decision. Is that true? Is it true that God was always intending to be with us and that sin, our sin corporately as humanity and my sin personally as an individual has separated us? And ultimately, is it true that God is still pursuing me in order to be reunited? And as you ask that question, if your answer is yes, that's reason to party. And so if your answer is yes for the first time, just talk to someone. Talk to me, Ryan, Tony, Michael, or your house church pastor, or if you're disconnected and you just showed up for the first time and you're like, there's an Asian guy yelling and spitting everywhere and you're scared and you're afraid. He's like, he's so loud. You don't have to talk to me, but talk to someone. Talk to someone. Uh, We've got a bunch of leaders actually wearing awakening shirts tonight, which is really helpful. So find someone who's wearing a blue awakening shirt tonight if you have questions. If you say, ah, God with us, sin separates us, and now God's pursuing us, God's pursuing me, if that strikes a chord with you and it's striking a chord for the first time, please do not leave without speaking with someone. We'd love to just hear your story and journey alongside you. You don't have to make a decision. We're not going to like take you out back and dunk you in water and you know we're not going to do any of that crazy stuff we might if you want to but (laughs) we don't have to and so ultimately if the story of the bible is the story of god with us sin separating us god pursuing us in order to reunite us and if what Jesus said about the kingdom is that it is a present reality, that it is, it is about rescuing the world, it, it, not rescuing us from the world, but it is offering rescue for the world. If those things are true, then what does that mean for you and me today? What does that mean for us today? If God is pursuing us because his kingdom is about rescue for us and for the world, and as the story has unfolded, with God's longing to be with us and sin separating us and now God's deep, passionate pursuit of us as he reveals it in his presence in the temple in and out of the Old Testament. What does that mean for us today? As Jesus came to live, die, and come back to life to culminate the arrival of this present and future kingdom, what does that actually mean for us today? Because if Jesus came to culminate the present kingdom, died, came back to life, and then left, well, where does that leave us? All of this is good and true maybe, but where does that actually leave us? 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, Paul says this, don't you know? that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. God's kingdom (coughs) offers rescue not from the world, but for the world. And the reason that is true is because God has always longed to be with us. And when sin separated us, God pursued us. And in his pursuit, he would show up in the temple to whisper to us, I am still for you and with you. I still want you. Not just some future place, but here and now, I want you. That's what Jesus came to flesh out in blood and bone for us. And then Paul lets us know that we now, are the temple, the place where God's presence resides. So how then are we to respond? What is to be the focus and the center of our lives as kingdom people who believe that the the kingdom is present now and it will culminate in the future, who believe that God is with us, he longs to be with us, and that he is pursuing us, and that he is present in our midst and in us. I believe that the response is spoken in the most famous prayer that any of us have ever heard, and many of you know it. Matthew 6, 9 to 10. This, then, is how you should pray, Jesus instructs us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And here's the key, on earth as it is in heaven that God's will would be done here and now, that heaven and earth would collide beautifully. You see, God's kingdom is, is not a philosophy or an idea. It isn't a static or fixed point in the distant future of the universe. The kingdom of God is a lived reality. It is a lived reality bursting to life in the way we love God, the way we love people, in the way we love our city and our world. I want to share with you the story of a woman who you've never heard of, an elderly woman in inner city Detroit who is living this reality with a heart to see His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Take a look at this. Well, the houses weren't abandoned, all like always. But once they, once like the years pass, people losing their houses and stuff. Like people taking like the gutters and the pipes out of the houses. Makes me feel like there's nothing I can do about it. There's too many bad things around here. As I'm growing up and I'm seeing that it's dangerous around here, and I just. I want to move when I get older. It's part of the fall. It's part of the brokenness of the human kind. Is when we are able to live with ugliness and blight, and it doesn't bother us, 
I think we have, we are very, very broken, very, very far from what God intended us to be. Gardening to me is is uh, is almost like sculpting with nature. It feeds me. It it I inhale it. It's like breath. It's like the Lord has created everything beautiful for us. And uh and we are built to bask in that. By the time we moved in in 2006, um, the general vacancy rate would probably be 40%. So there was either no home or an abandoned home on a lot. By now, it's closer to 60%. It's going really fast. This. So just go all the way. Into, to do the, just do the big leaves. Don't worry about the little ones. So in 2008, we started a real youth-operated, youth-owned market garden. So the garden is really the kids. All we do is provide the expertise and train them. And then they grow the vegetables. They sell it at market. We keep this whole system of hours and so on, and they get paid according to how many hours they put in. So I think gardening is one of the prime ways in which you can make a blighted place look much better. And a lot of it is free. You know, God grows all this stuff. One corn, one corn seed makes a big stock. So that's what I do. I create beauty and I create it now. All right, let's see you taste one. The garden, I like helping people. That's the one thing I like about the garden. Because I grew up here my whole life. I wouldn't want to leave it. It's hard to leave something that you love. You do some more about it, so much about it. The one thing I struggle with in gardening is that it's never perfect. And sometimes that bugs me. I'd sometimes, you know, it makes me think of... Well, my life in God again. We start the kingdom of heaven here now, but it ain't perfect. It won't be perfect until Jesus comes back. And, and I am looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to... I'm looking forward to the day where everything will be perfect. Um... Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
None of you know who um, Riet Schumach is. You wouldn't have known had you not watched this video. She hasn't written any books and she doesn't speak at conferences. She's not a Christian celebrity and she's not on TV. But what she is, is a woman of the kingdom bringing heaven to earth. Let me, let me say a few of the words. I just want to read some of the words she said in that video. The Lord created everything beautiful for us and we are built to bask in that. So that's what I do. I create beauty and I create it now. The one thing I struggle with in gardening is that it's never perfect and sometimes that bugs me. It makes me think of my, my life in God. We start the kingdom of God here and now, but it ain't perfect. And it won't be perfect until Jesus comes back. And I'm looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to the day when everything will be perfect. Jesus said a couple of things about the kingdom. Matthew 13, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He says in chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Truly I tell you, you, all of you and me, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. When you came in, you received a little bag with a mustard seed in it. And it's tiny. You can probably barely see it. You've got a feel for it. You could do whatever you want with that seed. You can go home and plant it and have some mustard greens, or you can chew it on the way out of here if you want to. That's kind of gross. You can do that. Whatever it is you do, here's my hope for us. Let that little tiny seed be a reminder to you that no matter how small you feel, no matter how insignificant you think you are, no matter how little you believe you have to offer, God's desire is to first and foremost be with you and then to take the little you have and use it to crash heaven into earth. Jenny and Tyler are going to come back up and they're just going to sing a song over us about Jesus as our king as we look forward in our hearts to that day when his rule and reign fully covers the earth. And so as they sing, I just want the words to wash over you. And before they sing, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. And I just ask you to hold that little bag with the mustard seed in your hand. Just feel it. Feel the, the tiny little seed in the bag. Feel it in between your fingers. And know that God longs to use that, that very little we have, to bring heaven to earth, to re reveal his kingdom on this planet, here and now, 
as we await the day when it culminates fully. So close your eyes and let me pray this over you. May you go and create beauty and may you create it here and now. May we be a kingdom people waiting and longing for the complete and perfect restoration that God will one day bring. And may we be a kingdom people here and now, living out that prayer we know so well, that his will would be done on earth in our reality as it is in heaven, God's reality, until the day when the two collide and become one in beauty with immense and eternal finality. Amen.